Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Stanley Whitney. On Saturday, January 21st, that's this weekend, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth will open Focus Stanley Whitney, an exhibition of the artist's latest work. It was organized by Allison Hurst and will remain on view through April 2nd. Whitney is an abstract painter whose explorations of color, form, and a lot more color are true to the modernist tradition and suggest new ways forward. His work is in the collections of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Yale University Art Gallery, and more. In 2015, the Studio Museum in Harlem presented a solo show of his work. And as Whitney mentions on this week's program, this summer he'll be included in Documenta 14, an annual that will be split between Athens and Castle, Germany. Stanley Whitney for the full program, after the break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation exhibition Medardo Rosso, Experiments in Light and Form, is one of the most anticipated retrospectives of the season. I'm thrilled to announce that our next live audience taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast will be with the show's two curators, Sharon Hecker and Tamara H. Schenkenberg. Please join the three of us at the Pulitzer on Saturday, February 4th at 11 o'clock. Admission is free. Hope to see you there. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C., stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who was identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu abney. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. And we're back. Stanley Whitney, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Let's start with a conversation you had with Lowry Stokes Sims that was published in a recent Studio Museum catalog, one of the really good artist Q&As I've read in recent years. And you talk about how you met Philip Guston in 1968. I think you were at a summer program at Skidmore College. 
and he talked you into going to New York. How did that conversation come to happen, and why did he tell you that that's where he thought you had to be? Well, I think that was uh, summer six. I think it was '66. It was summer six. It was at Skidmore College, and Gustin was the uh, visiting artist, and I was in. I think I was a junior in art school in Kansas City, Missouri, at uh, Kansas City Art Institute. And that came about. He he really liked the work. I mean, he you know, Gustin was interesting. He I met him when he was just changing his work. We didn't see his work. We thought he was still making abstract work, but he was changing his work. There was me and another artist, Charlie Hewitt, who he really liked. He was kind of an old school kind of teacher where he said, You two are the artists, you know, and everyone else forget. <laughs> So he was in my studio a lot, and uh, I I always wanted to, I always wanted to be in New York. I mean, I was from Philadelphia, and so I, I, New York was my uh, I wanted to get there somehow, and I didn't know how I'd get there. And he was involved with the, the studio school, so he he said I can get you a scholarship to the studio school, but the studio school wasn't accredited, so it was a little bit problematic in terms of how I could really make that jump. But actually, the Art Institute allowed me to make the jump and go there because I was sort of like a six-year kind of senior because I, tr- I had transferred in. So they, they sort of said, yes, you can you sort of make that jump. I could do that. And then they wanted to – it's kind of complicated because they wanted the, – the studio school wanted to sort of like the idea of a, that they were unaccredited. They were going to get credit from a – I was going to get credit as a credit school for BFA Kansas City from them. So that was a program they wanted to start. Although when I went there, I dropped out immediately and didn't really do it. Because I, I didn't, I didn't, I thought it was kind of old fashioned at the time. I mean, now I probably would have loved it a lot, but at the time I kind of wanted to be in Mexican City or where it was happening. And I would, I didn't want to reminisce about the old days. So that was a, but but Gustin was very key in terms of getting me to New York. That was a really, it was, you know, the reason I'm kind of hesitating a little bit, that was a very complicated time. You know, there's a lot going on. The war was going on, you know, civil rights was going on, black nationalism was going on. It was a lot, it was a complicated time. And I was sort of like, you know, you had to, I wasn't really, I hadn't quite beat the draft yet, you know, the draft. We were always we were getting drafted. So it was complicated, but I, I sort of made it through. And so Gustin was a, be, a big uh, key in that. Even even when I went to New York and I dropped out of the studio school, which kind of, they gave him a hard time because of that. But I worked in the Strand Bookstore, and his wife was a you know poet writer. And next door to the Strand Bookstore was an old art supply store. Uh, they used to buy the art supplies, the abstract expression. So he used to come in. I would see him. But Gus at the time was not someone who wanted to hear anyone else's problems. He said, I have my problems, you have your problems. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really want to deal with any, you know, my problems at all. So it was a complicated time, but he was very key. Yes, that was a very key time for me. There's a great account of your Vietnam War, uh, war era draft avoidance machinations in John Yao's Q&A with you in a Brooklyn Rail issue from 2008. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. It, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time you meet Gustin, you're going to New York, this period in the mid to late 60s, you're making mostly figurative drawings? Well, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. That was interesting about it when I met him. I didn't know, I, I 
I had been sort of making these paintings, sort of like made up paintings of, of, of self-portraits and using images from other people's paintings. And look, I would do a painting when I was a student of like, I could take a Courbet and mix it with a Roscoe. I mean, did all kinds of weird stuff. And so when I met Gustin, it's a summer program, I was just drawing. I wasn't really painting. Because he was just drawing, too, wasn't painting. And, I, and it's funny because he was going one way, I was going the other. I was sort of going from this kind of sort of like kind of funky figuration, kind of like Stephen Corn, West Coast painting, kind of, you know, coming to New York in the summertime, looking at paintings and just mixing everything up. And he was going from abstract to figuration, although I didn't, I didn't know at the time. So we kind of were, we were both kind of like, I was kind of like trying to figure out how to get someplace. I think that's why we kind of hooked up. He was looking to get someplace else, and I was looking to get someplace else. So I was just drawing a lot. I just I just spent the summer just drawing, drawing, drawing. So I, I think he really. I don't know how many paintings of mine he really saw. To tell you the truth, I think I I started a few paintings and I stopped. I just spent the whole summer drawing, and I had never really drawn like outside and drawing, you know, landscapes or you know. I think I was taking you know, a branch into the studio and just do a whole bunch of drawings, kind of abstract, kind of figurative, kind of, I don't know, flower drawing or twig drawings or tree drawings, kind of thinking more of like, a, say, maybe, maybe it's sort of, uh, you know, early sort of, uh, I don't know, early kind of like Kelly or Mondrian kind of drawings, you know. So I think that was a big key, I think. And then, and then he would always tell me, Stanley, why don't you go downtown and draw downtown? Why don't you draw that car? And I would go, why would I do that? <laughs> I think it's what he wanted to do. <laughs> you know, once I always tell about Gustin, we were walking down the street in uh, Saratoga Springs, and we came across a red Cadillac convertible. And he and he went crazy over this red Cadillac convertible. Wow, what a red, what a cat. Why don't you draw this, Stanley? Look at this car. And I was like, because at the time, I must have been like, what, 20, and he must have been, Maybe he, he got, I guess, younger than I am now. Maybe in his 50s. And I thought, wow, this old guy's really excited about this red Cadillac. I thought he's more excited about it than I am. But he, uh, I think he he was going through that too, and I was going through that. So I think it's how we how we became kind of hooked up. That kind of that was a, a good time that way for me. So I learned a lot from him in terms of seeing and putting and how to put things together and. And his enthusiasm and love for art was just so great. It was uh, unbelievable, really. That's probably also about the time he's painting Klansmen in red cars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is the late 60s, and you're making mostly representational work. Do you remember, or is it important to you, when you flip the switch and, and really turn toward abstraction? Well, I think, I to, I think before, I went to, before I went to that summer... I mean, Gus and I think I, I, I was going to an abstract. I knew then I could, you know, the paintings I was making up, they were too psychological and people kept thinking, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really want to be a storyteller. I realized I wasn't a storyteller. There's lots of stories to tell. I wasn't a storyteller. And I saw some Martin Lewis works, which I really liked a lot. That was a, that was a big key. Because before that, I was looking at, you know, a lot of old, I mean, looking at Goya, Velasquez, and, Mostly, you know, and then there was sort of deep and core, of course, and he was interesting because of the whole figurative and then abstract thing. So I, I was, I didn't know where I was going to go, and I sort of had lost my way in terms of my heroes. And so when I found the Morris Lewis, and I saw those, those kind of clicked for me. 
but they were so absolute. Think about that work. It's so absolute. What could you do with it? You know, and, but that kind of clicked for me that I wouldn't do that. I wanted to go towards abstraction because I felt there was a lot more room there for me to do a lot of, you know, I didn't know then that color was my subject matter. In fact, I didn't know my subject matter at all at that point. I think that when I got to Saratoga, I was already going towards abstraction, but didn't know really what that was yet. I was figuring it out. I was slowly piecing myself back together again, I think. So, uh, and I knew I wanted to go to New York. I thought New York was really the hub. New York, I know I'd see a lot. You know, I, I used to go to New York in the summer because that's from Philadelphia. So I'd go to New York in the summertime, see friends, and go to the museums. And I knew New York, I saw a lot of work in New York, you know. And I thought, well, New York, if I get to New York, I can see a lot of work. I, I can really study, you know, in New York. And so that was a big key. I mean, Kansas City was great hideout, away from the war, away from, you know, all the sort of political things. It was a real, like, being in the country in a way, outside of the whole East Coast thing. I mean, it was, it was crazy there, too, because you had, you know, Wallace running for president. I mean, it was a really crazy time. But I could kind of hide out in Kansas City and just paint and not be bothered by anything. I mean, there were people there, but it was much easier than, say, what was happening in New York if you had, you know, you had Amir Baraka with the, you know, Black Nationalist, you had Malcolm X, you know I mean? You have the stuff that you, I think if it's in New York, you're really in, in the in the heart of it, you know, so it was, it was pretty easy Kansas City. That's important context for, for my next question, which is, you know, in almost every interview I've read you do, either the questioner or you have raised how difficult it was or was presumed to be to be both a black painter and an, and an abstract painter. Was that something you had to work your way through or is that something that questioners just assume <laughs> you had no, to work your way through? something you had to work your way through. I mean, I came out, I mean, I came out of a lower middle class, you know, poor family and the idea of being an artist uh, especially a painter. I didn't go to art school to be a painter. I thought I'd be, you know, I'd go to art school and be an illustrator and make a lot of money. That was my idea. And then I fell in love with painting. And yeah, it was hard. It was hard to defend, you know, at that point in time, you know, you had people, re- I mean, you know, it was sort of like, what are you doing for the race? What are you doing? What are you doing? What, you know, how, how do you, you know, if the Black Panthers came by, I see in Kansas City and said, okay, Stanley, what are you doing? You know, and I, if I said, it's painting, and they would think, well, that's, what's that? That's nothing. That's just some bourgeois thing, you know. Um, so was abstraction a more bourgeois thing? Well, I don't even think that was even the case of you know, abstraction. I think it was even like just painting was like, you know, what is, I mean, that's the front line kind of activity. I mean, it didn't really, it's not something that people think, I don't even think the day they think is a, a political act. You know what I mean? I, I, I probably think it is, but they probably didn't. And at the time, I couldn't defend that. I mean, I knew I wanted to paint. I knew I had to paint. So, sort of like, you know, I kind of felt like I was painting the war. You know, I always think about it now. It's like when I think about Matisse painting those paintings in, in Nice with the Nazis walking down the street. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like I, kind of feel like I painted to the war. That's how I feel it was now. I painted to the war. So I painted through, you know, you know, Kansas City Wallace running for president. I painted through the Black Panthers. I, I mean, no, no one wanted me to paint. <laughs> so, the, so the battle was really painting, not abstract painting. The battle is really painting. Then abstract painting is something. It, it gets a, it gets a, it's a different battle. You know, that, that's that, that's a different battle. So then, you, so then when you get to 
when you get to sort of like if you if say if the black bourgeoisie accepts painting, they want images that they say uh, represent what is black. And then I think then you get into who defines who you are or how who 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 pleases you. So I think the whole thing the whole thing I dealt with is like a lot of people want to please me. You know, like, you know, this is what you should be, this is who you are. You know, there's lots of, you know, people are, whether it's painting or not painting, I mean, the people have love laws, you know, those kinds of laws about what or who or should you be or what you could be. And, uh, I mean, that's what we're going through now, whether it's gender or, or race, is all these kind of laws about, you know, what things, who you are and who says what. So, uh Painting is a real kind of radical act, and it's a painting is a real, you know, it's a real loving act, and that's kind of when you're when you're doing a real loving act or involved with love in the midst of a war, it gets kind of like people, it doesn't really belong, you know. So if you're already thinking of painting as a political act back in that period, were there painters, artists, poets to whom you looked to give you permission to be a black abstract painter you know somebody who showed the way or guided the way i you know i never really saw myself as a black abstract painter that wasn't something that, that really concerned me whether you know i mean i knew i i mean you know you don't walk around thinking of a black abstract painter i mean i don't always i consider myself a painter so i wasn't really thinking that i mean if i think about that time you know, I, I was lucky to grow up in a time where, you know, with King, when I was a king, what he got done allowed me to really go on and, and, and be the painter. Uh, I wasn't born a time, say, like Norman Lewis, who was really had to really deal with that. You know, what I mean, I was kind of I was kind of free of that. I'm probably the first generation to kind of start to be free of that. I was just going to say you're about 10 or 15 years behind First Lewis. generation that begins to be free of that, you know, who who is allowed to go and just do what I want. You know what I mean? And th there was that whole thing of sort of like, what are you doing? You know, like community, what's community? So there was a hint of all that, but not, not my studio. I, I really decided that I was going to be more involved with, you know, who the, being a human being. And not that. I mean, I don't really, you know, think of myself as black until maybe I can't get a cab or something. You know what I mean? I don't wake up and think, well, <laughs> I'm black. I, I, that's something people sort of lay on you. And I go to the studio. I mean, the, the, my painting, what I do comes out of my culture and how I grew up and the music and how I move and my ancestors. And then also, you know, when I saw... Like I said, when I first got involved with painting, I saw, uh, I wish I saw Cezanne and thought about, you know, uh, Charlie Parker. So that's how I, how I got involved with Cezanne was really through Charlie Parker, you know, in terms of that. So those kind of things in terms of piecing those things together, that's what I spent my early years doing, trying to figure out how much of, how much of the, this part of the world, or that part of the world, or how much of my growing up in a small black community, how much going to, you know, when I go out to Kansas City and my best friend was painter Al Taylor, he was sort of like, you know, 
uh, this guy from Wichita, Kansas, and he came a whole different kind of background than I did. And, you know, being really, really American in terms of how you mix these things up, you know, because that's the thing about America. It's, it's sort of like it's all these things all mixed up. So I think about me, probably I think of myself more as an American painter. The uh, Ruth Fine's recent Norman Lewis catalog has some great passages on on Lewis on, on experiences Lewis had late in his career, and listeners may enjoy taking a look at those and, and contrasting them and comparing them to, to to what we're talking about. Let's skip forward to your 1993 trip to Egypt, which you've repeatedly identified as being important. It helped you realize that you could quote put forms, colors, and marks together and still have a lot of air, air, air in the painting. Help me out with that. I've read that in a couple interviews. What was it you saw in Egypt or, or experienced in Egypt, maybe, that got air into the painting? Okay, let's go. You know, I'll have to, you know that's interesting. It's really important. That, that was the last piece of the puzzle, are we still? That was the last piece of the puzzle. It started out really because in the, in the 80s, I was teaching out in Stanford and also uh, Berkeley just for a couple of semesters. But at the time, I traveled across country a lot, uh, drove across country, which is a wonderful drive. I wouldn't mind doing it again. And I was much more interested in sort of thinking about air, thinking more about landscape and, and uh, like, you know, if I think about Clifford Still, thinking about Polly. So I always thought that if I put the colors side by side, I want a lot of air in the work. I knew that. I want a lot of space in the work. And if I thought about space in the work, I thought really sort of like again about those two. And when I, then I went to I went to Rome uh, in the '90s. That was the first time I went to Rome. When I got to Rome, then I started thinking more about architecture because Rome, you have great architecture. You have great architecture, and you have great light. You know, I mean, in Rome, if you stand in the shadow, it's one, one temperature, you stand in the, the sun, it's another temperature. And so you have the great light that you see from Caravaggio, that from dark to light, you know, that light. And then you have that great architecture. You go look at the Pantheon. When I went to see the Colosseum uh, the first time, I was surprised how much it, was, it had a human scale. It was huge, but it had a real human scale, I felt. From the first, from one brick to the size, the whole thing. I thought a great scale, and so I was always thinking about scale. So that was a big thing, architecture. And then you look at the the, the pillars at the Pantheon, you know, and they're like ten tons, you know, and that all that. So then I go to Egypt. So I go to Egypt, and then really talking about architecture and talking about weight. And so I'm in the Egypt. I'm looking at you know the pyramids. I'm looking at the tombs. I'm looking at all the all the frescoes on the wall. And then it hit me. I thought, you know, I could probably put all the colors side by side. And then I realized, I realized then that the, the air and the space could be in the color, not that the color was on the, on the, on the space, the space was in the color. So in painting, you get all those kinds of things like, which are really sort of physically very simple, but mentally uh, hard to get to. It's sort of like if you look at, uh, Mondrian, and you look at why it took so long for a black line to become a blue line or a red line, you know, and have this, not have the color be a square, but have the line be a color. So those kind of things. So that was a big thing. So when I did that, when I realized that, that I could put the color, you know, buttoned up against one another and not lose the air, because I kept thinking if I did that, I could, uh, I would lose all that kind of space I wanted. So that was a big thing. So, so then I had, so that was less with the puzzle because, because 
before that, I was, I mean, I still draw a lot. And so uh, that kind of space and that kind of air I can get with my black and white drawings. And then the color, I realized space is, space is in the color. So that, that was a big thing, you know, that was a big thing. So a great way to give image to that idea might be a painting you made in 1991 called Radical Openness. And there are two things about this painting that strike me as really different from, from where you ended up just a few years later. And, and I think I'll try and ask about both of them. The first one is instead of these all-consuming, and by all-consuming I mean, you know, instead of the grids you use now where, 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 where there's no space between the elements, in, in radical openness you have three rows of shapes, and on the top you kind of have maybe some rectangles and some circles, and then on the next level down the circle, they're, they're kind of more circular, and then at the bottom they kind of become a little more rectangular. Did you have to work to eliminate those shape-like forms, or was it more of a eureka moment? Well, I was, a, I was a, you know, a process painter, so I mean, what I mean by that is sort of the paintings kind of, I make the paintings tell me what to do. That painting, I know what you're talking about. I don't know really if how the painting happened that you're thinking about now. You know, that was, that, you know, at that time, you know, with all that kind of gesture, I, I was thinking, you know, I was doing that, but then I was, you know, I, I kind of, what happened with that really was, I can maybe say is, I kind of wanted to get rid of that kind of abstraction kind of gesture, that graffiti kind of gesture. I mean, people love the gesture. And so, but I kind of really wanted to really do something else besides that gesture. And I, but those paintings were, those paintings were real discoveries. Those paintings were really hard fought for. Those weren't easy paintings to make for me. They were really, I know what I was doing at that point. You know, they were the beginning of me. Just figuring it out. That was just the beginning of things coming together. That was a really, um, those were hard fought for painting. So yeah, those, those are really, I look at those paintings now and think, wow, that, those were really, uh, those were tough paintings for me to get to. But I, I got there. So I, I can't really say much about the, making the painting itself. You know, I, I think about the, the color. I think the black with the, the yeah, those were really, and it's funny because I showed this painting at Karma and I had when I made this painting, I never showed those paintings. Never went out to the studio until I showed them the Karma for the first time. So those were great to see, and those were um, those were tough paints for me to make. That's all I can say. In addition to the shapes, which you would soon eliminate, the the other thing you would soon eliminate is what we were talking about when you were describing your experience in Egypt, and that is that the shapes are separated from each other. They don't bump into each other, and they're separated from each other by distinct lines or blocks but but mostly lines of color some of which is almost black was the hardest thing to eliminate from the painting that separating line or those separating blocks of color what i would usually do is i would lay a gray field and lay and, you know because i grew i came in europe with a lot of color field painters the color field painters and i found the work very weak in terms of drawing and and, and uh, but I like the color, of course, and uh, so I I always haunted me to sort of have this color on a field or on a, on a you know on a on a space. So actually to paint that black around and and sort of fill that in and bring it up bring it up to the same same space or same level as, as those colored sort of you know blobs. That was a big that was a big thing because usually I didn't do that. Usually I laid the colors 
gray down and put color on top of that and sort of had sort of so, so you can sort of see through the color being one space and, and, the, and the field be another space. So a, a further back space, like the back space, almost like staging it, like staging. And so, yeah, to lay that black and have that black come up and sort of like be sit there with the red or the yellow, I think it was green that painting uh, with a big with a big thing. I did that was a big that was a big breakthrough too. Those paintings are big breakthroughs in terms of just I should let it all hang out in those paintings, and those were big big breakthroughs. And then as I go along, you know, actually being in Italy too, and then and then you know I started they kind of calmed down a little bit because I, I started thinking more about Mirandi and those paintings, you know. And I, 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 you know, seeing a lot of graffiti, even in the, even in the trains in Italy and, you know, all over and New York and thinking about uh, the cooning and, and gesture, I, I kind of didn't want, you know, that was a big thing. When I gave that up, people were kind of like a little, a lot of people who liked the work were a little, you know, a little surprised that I gave all that gesture up. But um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want that kind of gesture. You know, slow, and the work the work changes little by little by little. You know, my work doesn't change very fast. My work changes. You know, early on I saw a show of uh, Mondrian at the Guggenheim, and I loved how it went step by step by step. So my work changes like that. You know, very slowly. I mean, if you saw my work from say the '70s till now, you would go, oh, everything makes perfect sense. You know, you would, see, you would see every step. You know what I mean? Every painful step. <laughs> My guest is Stanley Whitney. We'll be right back after a break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The history of the civil rights movement is commonly illustrated with well-known photographs from Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma, leaving the visual story of the movement outside the South remaining to be told. In North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South, a new book from Getty Publications, historian Mark Speltz shines light on images of everyday activists who fought campaigns against segregation, police brutality, and job discrimination in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Visit shop.getty.edu to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Emperor's Treasures, Chinese art from the National Palace Museum, Taipei, showcasing masterpieces that highlight the artistic and cultural contributions of imperial rulers in China, from the Song Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty. With more than 160 objects, the exhibition reveals 800 years of Chinese history and tradition, on view through January 29th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org treasures for more. Don't miss the critically acclaimed exhibition A Revolutionary Impulse, The Rise of the Russian Avant-Garde, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. A century ago, Russian avant-garde artists, including Kazmir Malyevich, 
Alexander Rodchenko, and Olga Rosanova created art to support a radically transforming society. Now, on the occasion of the centennial of the Russian Revolution, MoMA has brought together must-see works from this fascinating era in what the New York Times calls a sparkling exhibition. Plan your visit today, get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. And now back to my conversation with Stanley Whitney. You know, these paintings from the early 90s, your paintings from the early 90s, remind me a whole lot of Rothko's from 1949, where he's got things that are separated within the rectangle, within the canvas, and that he's working to bring them together in a whole, working to prevent them from being separate things on the canvas and, and, and working to unify the thing. Was that period of Rothko, is that period of Rothko important to you? Well, you know, everyone's early work's important. You know, I just saw that show, Abstract, at the Royal Academy in London. David Ann Pham's show of New York. Yeah, yeah, and that was a great show. Yeah, seeing the early work, I mean, like seeing you see the early Clifford Stills of these kind of weird figurative things, you know, early Clifford Stills. You see the early, you know, but the early work was great seeing Rothko because, you you know, he could have gone a lot. You see how people could have gone a lot of ways. You know, he could have gone this way. He could have gone that way. And the choices he made in terms of what is he going to do, what he wasn't going to do. Or my choice of, like, giving up, say, that all that gesture, you know what I mean? Or, or, the, or the moving, just staying with the gesture. So you see these decisions that artists make. So, yeah, that those are things that are really, you know, Rothko, you know, like, one reason I'm abstract painter is because of things like that, like Rothko, Clifford Still, uh, uh, de Kooning, all the people. I want a little bit of everything in the work. And the system I have now allows me a little bit of everything in the work. You know, it's like, like not one color. You know, it's a lot of color. I mean, with Rothko, I didn't want to – you know, Rothko, I thought, well, you know, he would go from, you know, maybe two, two or three colors. I wanted four or five colors. You know, I want I want I want to – I sort of want the history of painting. I want the history of painting, the whole history of painting in one painting. That's that's what I want. I want every color in the universe in one painting. So, yeah, the, the, seeing people's early work is key. I mean, early on, I say really hard. That's why I came to New York, so I could really look, go, you know, those early years in New York in the 60s, going to 57 Street, looking at art. The modern, uh, the med. I remember seeing, you know, a lot of Marlboro, a lot of early, you know, some some really great black and white uh, Pollock paintings. You know what I mean? Or I think even some I saw on on linen, which I can't. I don't think I've seen in a long time. But you know, just seeing all that stuff. That 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 yeah. The early work's key. Yeah. To you know, yeah. Roscoe Roscoe was always key to me. But then I. But then so. But then at the same time, as I say Roscoe, I can say so is. So it's Pollock, you know what I mean? So how do I mix those things up? That's that's the whole thing. It's like I I didn't want to do one thing and not do the other thing. You know, I, I sort of wanted everything. Well, let's let's talk about color. We haven't talked too much about color yet, which is really kind of kind of weird. Are are there any colors you intentionally avoid or don't use? Not at all, you know. And uh, I don't really the color. You know, the color is wide open. I don't start a painting knowing what the painting is going to be color wise. I mean, that's a great thing about. What I do is in a sense I have this sort of like, you know, people call it a grid. I never even think about the grid, but I sort of, you know, I, I lay these blocks of color down and I never know how they're going to, what, what color is going to appear. 
that's why it gets back to music it's a call and response i let a color down and a color a color calls another color and so then people say well you, you know and i use a lot of red but someone said well it's red your favorite color i go no actually my son asked me what my favorite color is recently i told him rainbow <laughs> uh because i really i although i use certain colors i i they're always shifting. I mean, even my blues are always, you know, even the same paint will be just a slight difference, a slight. Because when I do a color, one thing I like to do with color myself, the reason I use the oil paint, is I can get a lot of different variations in terms of color, uh, in terms of touch. So if I change my touch, I change the color. You know what I mean? And that's the great thing about Roscoe. You really get this, that's one thing about Roscoe is the touches. I mean, I just saw that show of those Roscoe, that pace, those dark paintings. And, you know, I just love how much you feel the paintings more than you, almost than you see the, see the paintings. You know, you feel the space. And with oil, I, I love that I can get a real variation in terms of my hand or my touch. Not sort of like, you know, that Frank Stella, what you see is what you get, or that industrial kind of idea of color. I like, I, I, I didn't want to give up sort of like the idea of, of how you paint, you know, like Manet, I didn't, or or Corbet, I didn't want to give that up. I've, I've read you use that phrase before, and when I read it or when I hear it now, the three artists I think most about are, are Matisse, Bonnard, and Diebenkorn, each of whose touch really changes color. I mean, all those important. I mean, uh, you know, Diebenkorn's very important. You know, in Kansas City, you know, right in the middle of the country, people were, you know, I went to art school, we were either going to, people, a lot of people went to West Coast, and then a lot of people went to East Coast. And Devin Korn's interesting artist because he really stayed West Coast artist. And and how he how he goes from you know because Devin Korn was great looking at those looking at such his figurative work and looking at that work and being in you know I can think figure drawing and thinking about what that meant or how I would, what the, I can do with that. And so Devin Korn's really for art student I think Devin Korn's great. And then he he's someone you you like early like in sophomore, freshman year, but then you also like later in life, which is, you know, pretty incredible how he moves from that work and from that sort of figurative work to that later work, the abstract work. And then you see where Matisse is. In fact, I guess there's a show right now, right, in Baltimore. Uh, yeah, which I haven't seen. I, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it. And I, hope, I don't know if I will see it, which is a... It goes to San Francisco. You'll have another chance. So yeah, the, all the you know all those people are important. You know, I mean, Matisse is you know huge for me. But Matisse, Matisse comes into me, my life sort of later. When I was a young artist, I thought, oh, I, I couldn't figure out really. It looked easy to me. You know what I mean? I I, I kind of wanted to struggle. I, I sort of wanted like, you know, Soutine. You know what I mean? Or you know, I wanted that struggle. <laughs> in, in 2013, Bomb Magazine ran a photograph, probably provided by you of a wall in your studio and one of the paintings, pictures, postcards of, of a painting tacked up on your studio wall is Matisse's 1908 Bathers with a Turtle, which was which was in St. Louis, which you probably saw in St. Louis when you were in Kansas City. Is that an example of a Matisse you struggled with or worked through and is it still? Well, that's a great painting because that's a real struggle. I mean, that's a painting that you can see he really struggled with. You know, I mean, it's such an awkward painting. It's such a crazy painting. I mean, he's just trying to, you know, he's really trying to figure it out, you know. Uh, you really sense that, you know, the politics of the time, I don't know what to paint it, but before the, before the, after the First World War, before, the, and, but those paintings, yeah, those paintings are great because, you know, you can see he's painting things out, painting things in, he's, 
I mean, the turtles just like you know, it's just it's just like just things that don't make sense. I'm sure people thought, what the hell is this guy doing? I mean, because if you think about that painting, and you think about the time, you think about how people were dressed and what people looked like in that painting, and what paintings were. I mean, that's really radical stuff. So yeah, that's that. So I look, you know, in fact, I had that painting up here. The three figures, three pink figures, and then the blue and the green, pink, and then the turtle. And I mean, I mean, they're not, the one is not sitting on something. I mean, they're not even maybe drawn what you say academically right, but it makes, it's, it's, it makes perfect painting sense. You know, I mean, it just makes perfect painting sense. It's like make perfect human sense. Like, so yes, that's a very important painting. I've been going to the St. Louis Art Museum since I was, I don't know, 10 years old or something. And I've never figured out that painting. I mean, it is the most wonderfully humbling experience. Yeah. Um, well, I, that's what you want from a painting. I mean, what you want, for, you want from a painting, you want something that you really, you know, you want something you really live with. You know, I try to make paintings that people can live with, you know, that you really can't figure out, that, that you know, they feel good. They're, you can sort of mentally wander in. You can really have thought with, you know, you can really figure some things out living with them, you know, and that's, and so that, that's what great paintings do. Do you ever borrow or lift a color from other painters? Not consciously. I mean, uh, not consciously. I mean, I, look, I, I tend to still go out, you know, look all the time, you know, like I see shows. And like I was great because I saw the show in Paris of the work from Russia. Then I went up to, to London so because I wanted to see, you know, blue poles. I wanted to see Pollock blue poles painting, which is in you know Australia. So. So I look all the time. So I'm look. I'm, I'm always, you know, if you're always stealing things. But I, I'm not sort of always conscious. That when I when I paint a painting, I'm not conscious of of something like that. But you know, I look all the time. So you're always looking sort of like what things are. Or I mean, sometimes I think about sometimes I think about like you know, like a Goya. I might think, oh, that red slash, you know, on that figure, the, uh, the material, that red, that beautiful red through the middle. I think, oh, no, you know, then I'll do something. And think, oh, that's like the Goya, you know, that red slash, you know, belt, you know, fabric through someone's you know, garment. I think, oh, that's like the Goya red. So, you know, things like that a- after the fact, you know, but not not while I'm painting or not before. I mentioned Bernard a moment or two ago, one of my favorite things in Bernard are his treatments of interiors and the way he gives the tile floors or the tile walls in his home, particularly in Le Canet, this remarkable chromatic excitement. There is a superficial relationship between the way you put color on a grid and stack it in rows and those Bernard interiors, and I wonder if they're important to you. Bernard, you know, not really. It's funny with that because, you know, Bernard early on is someone who I did look a lot at, and I know this, what you're talking about in terms of those paintings, and I, and I, and I, Bernard, Bernard's so soft, you know, he's so loving. And yeah, there is, of course, there is something about that in terms of the light, in terms of the color, but he's not someone I just like now think that much about. I think probably more about, say, uh, Mirandi than Bernard. But yeah, I mean, and the, because the color, you know, I always had the color. I always had the color. I, I tell, I'll tell you a story. When I was, I tell, I, mean, I, tell, I always tell, I've told so many stories, the same stories as my same life, so it's my life. But I, when I was young, I went to, a, a, I was maybe 10 years old, and I grew up in Bryn Mawr, sort of wealthy neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, the main line. 
And, you know, I was part of a poor black community, most people, you know, servants, working class people. And uh, there was a little art school I went to and I went to and uh, I, and so we had a, a figure paint a portrait and I painted the portrait and I used every color on every color there. And the and everyone else was like, you know, sort of realistic black and white kind of like chromatic, you know, uh, and I painted the painting with every color, and the teacher loved it. But everyone, and I looked at everyone's painting, but everyone's painting was like, you know, only like, you know, brown and pink and black and white. And I thought, oh God, you know, and I was just the only little black kid in the room. And I thought, oh man, I did a lot wrong. And so my teacher loved it. I took it on my parents, and parents said, what's that? You know what I mean? I, and I never went back. <laughs> never went back. So I always had the color. The color was always there, you know what I mean? But I, but, but making color, subject matter, making color, and, and taking my life into the music, because I grew up, you know, in a household where music was on 24 hours a day. I mean, the radio, you slept with the radio on, you woke up with the radio on. Music was like playing 24 hours a day. So, uh, and taking all those things, making these paintings out of it, you know, was a lot of study to, to do that. So Bernard, you know, he's important to me because he's a good painter. So all the good painters are important to me. Uh, but I don't necessarily think about that wall or, or that. And and he has a different, the way he touches the canvas, uh, he's so soft. I'm, I'm kind of more brutal than that, I guess. <laughs> One more thing before we transition to talking about three or four specific paintings. For years, I'm not I'm not sure starting when, but you've made paintings that measure one foot by one foot. And you kept doing them, and my understanding is you tend to keep a few of them around the studio at any one time. Why that size, and why do you keep doing them? What about that thing do you find helpful or useful? That kind of, uh, you know, this sort of, sort of happened by mistake. One time I went to Art Supply Store, and they had a little box and little canvases, and I bought a few, and, I, and they were very cheap, so I bought them, I did them. But those are interesting because those are almost like, because they're, the way I make them, they're so tiny. It's almost like jewelry, you know. It's like really that gets now that gets more like Bernard because it gets more like jewelry to me. I give Charlie almost like jewelry, like a small brush, you know what I mean? As opposed to a big brush, they kind of keep me in shape. But what I do is I work, work on a big painting, then I'll do a few of the little paintings like that because I, I paint. In, I have these little salad bowls I paint with, mix my paint in, and I paint in the bed, and then the end, I feel like I'm really in shape. I'm really I'm really like sort of like by the end of the day, a session, I'm in really good shape, I feel like. And I, I kind of make those paintings and they just are really kind of like uh, somehow they're important mentally for me to do that, to just clarify a few little things. And they're really by that point, I could care less. I'm really like I just do them almost subconsciously and it just feels really good to me and they're important for me to do. So and if I don't do them, I kind of. You know, in a way, it keeps me in shape. I mean, painting to me is almost like staying in shape. Like, if I don't paint for a while, it's hard to get the rhythm. It's hard to get, get it going again. It's sort of like staying out of shape, you know. It's like if you, you know, you go to the gym and then you're in shape. And then if you get out of shape, it takes a long time to get back in shape again. So those little paintings kind of keep me mentally sharp, keep me in shape. You also make these small paintings that are just black and white, black paint on, on white. And you've been doing those for years as well. I was wondering if you think, you know, if those come from a particular place and the place that that jumps to mind, knowing your biography a bit, 
is is that you took classes from Al Held at Yale who made those those black and white paintings for years. Do you think those stem from him or do they come from something else? I don't necessarily think they do. I mean, Hell was interesting, but no, I, they, those come from those come from my drawings. And when I draw, uh, no, in fact, they're not paintings; they're gouaches on paper. When I draw, uh, I tend to draw in black and white because I, I kind of want to, you know. One thing I, I did early on was I realized drawing was the key. I realized draw, you know, with Gustin, I see how drawing saved him. With Bryce Martin, I see how drawing saved him. With Roscoe, I see how drawing didn't save him. And so drawing is a big key for me. So those were something I did. I first did those in 2009, and I did them. And I didn't. And I thought they were kind of interesting, but I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe, I, I couldn't tell if something was there or something wasn't there. I wanted to do something that was just bare bones. Because uh, I think in my black and white drawings is bare bones. But at the same time, early on, when I first came to New York and the painting weren't happening, you know, I went out and bought a book on, um, a big book on uh, Van Gogh's draw, Van Gogh's complete works. And I, I always used to go to Guggenheim, they always sit sepia Van Gogh drawing. And I always thought of Van Gogh's drawing, how colorful they were. I thought, oh, these are really colorful, but there's no color. And I thought, well, it's just like a painting, but no, but they're just as colorful as the painting, just a mark making and how rich they were. So my always my thing is, can I take a black and white and make it as rich as the paintings? So that's what those are about. And so I still make those. And I'm still curious about how they're, why are they interesting or why are they, what about them? But the thing about drawing black and white is I really work on the space where things are, you know, because the big thing is it's not about it's the color. It's like where the color is in space. And that's the key about the drawing. The drawing is key in terms of, getting in the color, putting the color in the right space so the color has a real intellect to it, not just decorative, has a real intellect. So those things are really about space and uh, and about color, black and white is color. And so that's something I, I keep doing. I don't know yet if I could ever make a painting, you know, black and white is color. I mean, that's something, I don't think I'm yet on making my, you know, late painting, although I'm getting pretty old. <laughs> I don't know if I like paintings yet. Because I don't know if I, you know, I haven't really tried to make a, you know, if I think if I made a black and white paint, a big paint, I, I would miss something. You know, I'd miss, I, I don't know if I could do it. You know what I mean? If it would be enough for me to do something like that. So, I, you know, drawing is something you do to keep, you know, keep some kind of like trap doors open so you don't paint yourself in the corner. I don't want to paint myself in the corner. You know what I mean? I, don't, I, I kind of want to have some trap doors and some, you know, back door trap doors, you know what I mean? Something like that. Not, not not to guide us down too too big a diversion, but it occurs to me that not all painters make late paintings. I mean, like Diebenkorn never really has a late period. It's just kind of a progression. It's true. I mean, you, you know, you could maybe it's true. Uh, maybe he doesn't. I mean, he but he slowly. It's how he how he, I might not either. I don't really know if I will. I mean, I think about because I, when I think about that, I, I think about uh, sort of Picasso's late painting. You yeah. know what I mean? And, oh, or Goyer. I mean, there are so many examples. Yeah. Yeah, and and so I don't know if I will either. I don't know. Who knows? Some painters are just on a ramp, and yeah, and the yeah, ramp keeps yeah. on keeping on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My because my work does change very slowly, so it's not like something you don't see too many radical, you know, all sort of radical shift. You know what I mean? Like I say, I'm much more. I, I mean, I knew early on I, I was going to be like, you know, Mondrian. I knew that early on. I thought, that's the way I'm going to go, I thought. I mean, you see things early on, you go, that's the way I'm going to go. 
You know, you have a sense. That's the way I'm going to go. I'm going to go that way. I've referenced a couple times in our chat a, a number of really great Q and A's you've done over the years. One of them was with John Yao in, in the Rail in in 2008, the Brooklyn Rail. And at the end of that conversation, you said that you want people to look at the title of your paintings, figure things out from the title, and that you hope to get, hope to receive the depth of critical or historical consideration that stems from that kind of study. So we're going to do a little of that. And I want to start, I want to go through a couple paintings, first one being the first-ish painting in the recent Studio Museum show. It's titled James Brown, Sacrifice to Apollo. It's from 2008. It's a painting you made, I think, um, right around the time James Brown died. There, There is near the top of that, at the top of that painting, kind of in the middle, not exactly in the middle, a light blue panel, a light blue square rectangular shape. There is a temptation upon understanding the title and understanding when you made it to read a shape and a color like that as heaven. Is that a reading you either want people to find that you're willing to consider or that you may be actually intended? Oh, you know, that's interesting. I never thought about that. No, it's nothing, you know, it's nothing I intended, but that's okay. I mean, the thing about the color is the color for most people brings up different stories and brings up different things, you know, depending on who you are. So that's fine with me. I didn't intend that, but that's fine. I, I know that wasn't something I thought about at all, but that's okay. That's good. I like that. That's fine. That puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I like that. It's good. Some some artists don't don't always appreciate. You know, some artists have more closed ideas about what's there. Well, no, I think you know the whole thing. They're wide open. I mean, it's funny about that painting because at the time I had an assistant and I always said, "Look, just make sure that people don't you know title that painting." Because I did it at the same time as Jane Brown, you know, passed away. Because I, I saw a painting someone did said Jane Brown's dead, and I thought Jane Brown never dies. And so I made that painting and, you know, and I really thought James Brown, like, you know, really as a god and, you know, very important. And so that's, it's a, it's a painting we're gonna, I'm going to show in Documenta in, in Athens, in fact, that painting. They're going to borrow that. So it became an important painting, which I'm glad about. But I always worried that people would say, I always say, make sure that people change that title of James Brown at the Apollo. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that would be my fear of that. That'd be a music album. That would that would be more album than painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, the title the titles are the titles are always to show how complicated it is. You know, because people always try to pinhole you into being something. You know, people always try to pinhole me into being. You know, what is to be black? Or what does it be this? Or what does it be that? You know, and, you know, as a human being, we're all very complicated. You know, as Americans, we're all, you know, everyone's, you know, black and white and Indian. I mean, it's amazing. In fact, it's amazing with Americans how much they don't realize how much Native Americans they are, you know, in terms of their, their, their ideas about freedom, their ideas about independence. It's not a European thing. You know, it's much more of a Native American thing. So all these things that I, I kind of want in the work. So, and I read a lot. I mean, I'm always reading and I want the title to really just, if someone really wanted to, you know, to really go through and the, the titles the titles themselves bring up a lot of things of who I am too. Uh, so it's great. I mean, I sort of like struggle over the title. Like I struggle over the painting and I struggle over the titles. I mean, I kind of wish like, you know, in fact, I'm sending some paintings out right now and I kind of wish I could just say untitled. 
but I, I don't want to send them out untitled. I like, I like, the, I like, like the story you just told me, I think, oh, that's great. You know, cause I would never have thought that, but that's great. Next painting, Dance the Orange from 2008. It's a line from one of Rainer Maria Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus. The line goes, dance the orange, the warmth of the landscape. It draws you forth so that your ripeness streams forth resplendent on the local breezes. A glow arising revealed. Is the painting a landscape, a warm landscape? No, no, no. But if, if you know, no, it's not. But, you know, the painting, the painting you want to be, if you want to be a landscape, that's fine. The painting are wide open They're for your own interpretation. If you want to, you could be, I mean, it, it could be, you know, it could be one, one day it could be a landscape and one day it could just be orange. I mean, it can be a lot, it can, it can, it can transform. It can be anything. The question that I read is Rilke's, I should make clear, not, not, not mine. But was it the question that, <laughs> that perhaps prompted you to use use that use that line? That no, title? you know, probably use that. I I love the idea, you know, dance, and I thought, you know, I love the idea of color. I thought, oh, dance the orange, and the painting, you know, has a lot of. And I thought, oh, that's that just that opens the whole thing up. Dance the orange. I mean, it's just it's just to me, really, just uh, the beauty of it all. So that's that's that. I mean, I I just I I sitting here thinking about it right now. I I I. I love that title, Dance the Orange. I mean, because you, you know, so it really is like Dance the Orange. What is that? I mean, that doesn't, it kind of, how do you do that? Or what is that? Uh, so it's just, it's all these things just to open people up to things. It's about opening things up. It's about really, you know, it's about wanting to be human. That's what we're trying to get at. There is a move you have that is in both of these last two paintings we've talked about that's in most of your big paintings that happens over and over again. And that's, you know, we haven't really talked too much about the grid in your paintings, which is fine. You've talked about it other places. But at the top of each painting, the very top, before the grid begins, there's almost always a long canvas spanning band of color, sometimes two colors. Why is that a helpful or useful move? I like the way that feels. When I, you know, when I started painting, I make that line across the top. I, I mean, it's funny, you know, it's a lot to do with the Egyptians' wall paintings. When I saw, when I was in Egypt, and I saw the wall painting. In fact, the Egyptians are interesting because they work, they work from the top, from the bottom up. I work, from the, I work from the, they work from the bottom up, and I work from the top down. But I just, you know, that kind of, that kind of, just kind of, that kind of stretch like that, it just opens it up for me. I, I just, you know. A lot of it do with things that feel right to me. It's not like, you know, with paintings, is painting sense, it's like we were talking about that Matisse, it's things just feel right. You know, it's like, you know, those three figures with that little turtle. I mean, it could be a, something else, but the turtle. It's funny because the turtle is like, you know, so slow too. It just feels right to me. And so if things feel right, it's like painting sense. It fe- feels right and, and uh, it just... And that I, if I like, I like that. I like to stretch my arm out that way. It's just a, a long stretch, and so that, that kind of expands. Again, it gets back to the idea of landscape, the idea of expanse. You know, it gets back to I think Clifford Still and how things sort of you know expand. It gets back maybe how the universe expands. So I, it just feels right. There's no, there's no. I don't get into. I don't question it that much in terms of right or wrong, good or bad or whatever. It just, you know, things, you know, you wake up at a certain time, it feels right. Stephen Korn in his Ocean Park paintings always has a line of color at the top and, and, and usually a line along one or both of the sides. And he never discussed this in any Q&As that I've ever found. 
but he seems to have had a rule for himself that he was never allowed to have a single color go all the way across the top or all the way up and down the painting without being broken up or interrupted or changed into a different color. Do you, do you have any rules for yourself about that color at the top of the painting? You know, I don't, I don't like to think I have rules, but then I probably do a lot of things always the same, but I don't think of them as rules. I, I think that they can all, things can always shift, but the rules, you know, if I have any rules, as long as, you know, my, as long as I'm not painting, uh, as long as every painting is, is a strong individual, then I'm okay. That's kind of my rule. You know, I mean, as long as they're strong individuals, that it's not a red one, a green one, a blue one, but a strong individual, then I'm fine. That's kind of that's kind of what I think about. And so, because people say, oh, you paint the same painting over and over. I go, oh, I guess I am. But but it's sort of I think about like Bud Powell playing the same tune over and over. It's never the same, you know. You hit a, you hit a note the same note different way. It sounds differently. That's the one thing I think about. Just keep them strong individuals. That's what I want. I want them to all be really. It's like the people in a the room. They all look very similar, but they're all totally different. So that's that big thing that, you know, one or two or three percent difference makes a big difference in everything. So that that's that's I maybe I I don't really like to have rules. I don't like to I don't like rules, I don't like laws. You know, that's that's something but you know, I understand why there are those things, but as an artist, as a painter, you know, I'm not really I'm in the individual finding their own way, which is you know, a big responsibility. Two more paintings. Next to last one is from 2015. Its title is My Name is Peaches, which is a line in Four Women, a 1966 Nina Simone song. Let's hear a little bit of it here. My skin is brown And my manner is tough Cause I'll kill the first mother I've seen Cause my life has been much too too rough in this hot sun it's been too rough i'm awfully bitter these days because the only parents i know were slaves what do they call me also have the full song on on manpodcast.com a a uh, a link to a youtube video of a live performance of of simone doing the song which is really great so this is a a 1966 song we we talked about 1966 earlier do you remember listening to this song in in 66 and skidmore oh yeah sure sure i remember all this stuff other than the fact that you know any of us can (laughs) listen to any song anytime we want nowadays any idea why that song was 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 in your mind or of interest to you in 2015? Yeah. Oh, because I, you know, I painted that painting and that uh, it had this really pink peaches color. It's like really that painting was really soft, and I thought about peaches. Well, you know, I'm, I always have, look in the black community. You know, there's always someone named Peaches. You know, usually a beautiful woman. 
peaches, and she's usually, you know, a certain certain color brown, but she's usually really gorgeous. Sometimes she is, sometimes she's not. But my dinner, there was only peaches. It was very gorgeous, but she's tough as nails. So when I painted that painting that was really this really soft yellow, pink, and then I have a color almost like peaches in it, I thought I'm going to name it something Peaches. I thought about I was thought about Nina Simone song. So I did that. And then also the story, you know, when the Black Panthers, this is a good story, when the Black Panthers were in a shootout in Oakland, you know, and they and they had a big shootout and they were surrounded, you know, FBI to everyone come out. And everyone said, "Who? I'm not going out there. And the woman who was in there, it was Peaches, and Peaches said, I'll go. So Peaches went out first. So that song, that title, I mean, I'm always trying to bring everything together in terms of whether it's the Panthers, my paintings, Cezanne, uh, Velasquez, Goya, you know, all together. You know what I mean? So that's, so that's, that's, that's a great thing about titles like that. See, so all the time we're having a conversation about a lot of different things. And uh, that painting is a really, um, you know, it was, a, it was a real beautiful painting. I mean, in fact, when I painted that painting, I thought it was too beautiful. <laughs> so that's, so that. So I'm always, when I paint a painting, I'm always looking, trying to figure out who it is, what it is, what's the name of that painting. I paint something and I go, what, what, you know, almost like, I almost have to ask it, what's your name? Who, who are you? So it's like, who, you know, it's like things appear and I try to, I try to identify, who are you? And so that's how Peaches came about. There are three different rectangles in the painting that could be said to be a peach-like color, two of which are identical. A third is a little bit more red. And as soon as, I mean, I remember this from, from, from seeing the show a couple of years ago. As soon as you look at the title of the painting, the only thing in the painting you see are those three rectangles that are peachy. And they just vibrate and bounce and, 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 and suck you in the way kind of Bernard color does. I guess that's that softness you were talking about. Uh, the last painting I wanted to bring up is one that I think will be in Fort Worth. It's called Sun Ra. It's a painting from last year, last year. Now oh, yeah. 20, you know, it's not going to be in Fort Worth, but they used it. Yeah, Sun Ra 2016. Yeah, yeah. First, does the title refer back to that 1993 Egypt trip, or is there a more recent No, reference? no. I was thinking about the musician Sun Ra. You know, I, I didn't know the painting. I always, you know, I always think about Sun Ra a lot as a musician, a human being, and what he did, who he said he was, where he came from, and, you know, how he wouldn't buy into the whole uh, race thing in America, the black and white. And, and so Sun Ra and his music and his discipline, and, and so he's someone very important to me. So, uh, and I called his, and I had named other paintings Sun Ra, but I called it Sun Ra. Uh, 2016, just the idea of keeping Sun Ra alive, you know, a lot of things I want to keep alive. And so Sun Ra, yeah, I know someone, uh, actually the person who brought the painting too, thought it was about Egypt, and that's fine too, because Sun Ra, that's, not how he, that's where he got it from. So that's, so all those things, yeah, all those things are important. So it wasn't so much about that, but, you know, it's a great thing about the titles and the great thing about abstractions and like that, there's lots of possibility of what it could be. And it's, and it's all those things. Yeah, it's all those things. One of the things I notice in this painting, and I've noticed it in, in a lot of other paintings, at least of the big paintings, is that when you allow one of the rectangles in the grids you build to be black, they are never the rectangles in the middle of the painting. They're usually rectangles that touch the perimeter of the painting. 
is there a, a, a reason for that? Is that just instinctual? Is that something you've noticed? Uh, you know, there's one painting I did that that was in the one of the big paintings that I early on, I put the black right in the middle. I, it's funny, I just saw Jeannie Greenberg has it in her house. It's one of those big long paintings I showed at, at Karma. But yeah, I tend not to. It's true, I'm looking at the drawing right now with the blacks along the edge. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, how I use black to balance things out. You know, you have these habits uh, you do and think, you know, you can make things work with that. But yeah, it's kind of like it's not something I plan on i think of the, cause the i think of the middle the middle i want really wide open and i don't want people to, to go to go in the middle you know what i mean to be sucked into the middle so i kind of want the middle to, to expand more so i don't tend to put the black in the middle but now you say that maybe i'll do it <laughs> <laughs> well stanley whitney it has been uh, an absolute thrill and a, and a pleasure to talk with you thanks so much for for chatting with me oh no thanks thanks it was uh, it was very enjoyable thanks for asking That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.